Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health and we have a real treat today. We have a return guest, Dr. Paul Saladino, who is also known as a carnivore MD. He's written a great book, which we've interviewed for him for in the past called The Carnivore Code. It really is, in my view at least, the best book out there about the carnivore diet. If you're interested in pursuing that for personal health goals, which is something you might want to consider, especially if you have autoimmune problems. I couldn't recommend it more heartily. But today, we're going to discuss something that he's also acquired a level of expertise in because one of Paul is a board-certified psychiatrist, believe it or not, uh, but he doesn't do that. But he has OCD. He's obsessive compulsive disorder. So when he, when he focuses on... Uh, a topic he just just researches the heck out of it and becomes essentially almost an incident expert and he's done a marvelous job of of the science supporting the natural lifestyle strategies that we can take to optimize our immune system and essentially defeat not only COVID-19 but virtually any other infectious agent that is a challenge to us so welcome and thank you for joining us today Thanks for having me on. That's such a great introduction. I'm, my, I'm, I'm honored and humbled, my friend. It's good to be here with you. I will also add, you'll appreciate this, that I just got board certified as a physician nutrition specialist. So I have two board certifications now. Wow. That, congratulations. That is great. So, you know, and that was an interesting exam. So yeah, I just, you know, the psychiatry is interesting and the psychiatry was a jumping off point for thinking about how immune function and metabolic health affects mental health. And as you're suggesting, I quickly realized that everything in the body was connected and I couldn't just focus on the brain without focusing on the rest of the body. And that's led us to where we are today. And let me just add one other characteristic for Dr. Saladino is that he is fit. He's clearly within the one-tenth of one percent of, of top uh, healthy fit people that I know. I mean, he's totally not only committed to the optimal metabolically uh, or metabolic diet, but also engaging in a fitness program that keeps him healthy. And we'll probably talk about that study. Yeah, 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 because exercise is great. It's just like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, before the podcast, you were, you were regaling me with stories of your own health. And what you're doing right now is pretty impressive with that 315-pound deadlift, my friend. So you're oh, three, three, 335, sir. 335. So <laughs> the pole is not a slouch either. Yeah, three pounds, three, three place plus. But yeah, it's fun, man. It's just and I look for, it's like normally resistance training, you like, oh no, I have to do that again. But I just like can't wait. I just like, whoa. And there's a lot of cool things too, like when you're doing resistance training with, uh, with uh, weighted belts, like doing pull-ups with belts or even doing push-ups with weighted belts, which is pretty intriguing. Yeah, it's, it's part of being a healthy human, right? It's one of those mm -hmm. pieces of it all. So yeah, but I think, should we start this discussion, Absolutely, this discussion yeah. of yeah. metabolic health? Yeah, and yeah. so the, the, the reason I wanted you on is that, uh, in my viewpoint, two of the most important characteristics 
that you could follow of uh, to minimize your likelihood of acquiring infection is one, optimizing your vitamin D level, which yes. we don't have to discuss today because I'm, I'm going deep on that and it's a whole campaign we're running. But then two, closely follow with that is becoming metabolically fit, metabolically flexible, insulin sensitive, all uh, synonyms essentially. So that's what I wanted to focus on. And I'm sure you, you, you've got a lot of uh, slides you want to show us today and we're going to go deep so people can understand it's not just a magic bullet pill you swallow with vitamin D. It's also the lifestyle you're engaging in that's going to, going to up, up, optimize your immune function. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that as we are faced with next infection, and one of the things that we're going to talk about today, which is so eerie but revealing, is that all of this data suggesting that coronavirus susceptibility is intimately connected with metabolic health. We knew this when we were talking about MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory System, when we were talking about SARS-CoV-1, which is the SARS virus, when we were talking about um, the flu virus from the past. So we've known forever and ever that metabolic health, and we can more carefully define that term in a moment, is critical for the immune function. This is an, a, a basically what I, and I believe you, to consider to be one of the most important, if not the most important field in emerging medicine, which is immunometabolism, the connections between metabolism and metabolic health <clears throat> and the immune system. And when we, I, I just want to start, start, start with a couple of key slides to share here. So this is a study that you and I have shared in the past. I talk about this in my book. The this Carnivore. is a classic. Everyone needs to bookmark this and they can use it because it is shocking the information it has. I mean, and this is the, the literature support for this shocking characteristic of, of the United States and most Western cultures. And so this is from NHANES. This is not a, you know, this is not some esoteric uh, database. This is the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey from 2009 to 2016. And they use criteria that we use to define the metabolic syndrome, Syndrome X. They use a waist circumference of less than 102 or 88 centimeters for men and women respectively. They use a fasting glucose of less than 100 milligrams per deciliter, a hemoglobin A1C of less than 5.7 a systolic blood pressure less than 120, a diastolic blood pressure less than 80, and triglycerides less than 150, in addition to a, an HDL of greater than 40 or 50 for men and women respectively, as criteria for metabolic health. I think this is a great place to start. Well, and, and, and you left out an important point, and not taking any related medication. Exactly, exactly. And what they found from NHANES, and this is really the point that is so striking, is that only 12.2% of people, metabolically healthy Americans, met that criteria. 12.2%. That means, you know, 88% of people are metabolically unhealthy or have at least one of these, you know, metrics that suggest they may have some degree of metabolic unhealth. And if you now, doubt now, before you go before you go on, that yeah. data is at least four years old. Exactly. So what do you think the real stats are? Even higher. <laughs> even higher. And these next slides from the CDC, these, you know, the percentage of adults aged 20 and over with obesity, and obesity is just an arbitrary measure of a body mass index, 39.8%. And this goes to 2016 as well. So about the same time frame as the NHANES data. The percentage of uh, adults aged 20 and over with overweight, including obesity, which is a little bit more broad, 71% in 2016. 
So if you doubt those numbers, you have to pay attention. You can't ignore the CDC, which four years ago, 71% of our population was overweight or obese, which so often correlates with metabolic unhealth, metabolic dysfunction. And that NHANES survey says only 12% of the population is metabolically elite, metabolically healthy. Now, it's not so much an indictment on our population, it's an indication. It's a, it's a real call to arms to say, this is what we should be talking about. And it's a real jumping off point for discussions about how metabolic unhealth has repeatedly been connected with worse outcomes, COVID-19, the disease associated with SARS-CoV-2, SARS-CoV-1, and MERS, as well as seasonal flu. It's just such a, it's, it's a huge piece of it. And I don't know about you, but I haven't really seen much media coverage of this at all. No, I was just going to address that. So what the media says is that the, the, the comorbidities are obesity, diabetes, and age, and uh, being of color. And they don't talk about the true issues, which are vitamin D deficiency and insulin resistance. And if you look at it, insulin resistance often underlies many of those comorbidities. Mm -hmm. And I'll show data to suggest that as we age, more of the population becomes insulin resistant, probably because we become a little less resilient to nutrient deficiency and we become a little more sensitive to the lifestyle factors that make us insulin resistant in the first place. But with aging, we see a direct correlation with insulin resistance. And yeah. With a, and, yeah. This, this is a key point because many char characteristics, clinical characteristics of aging humans are ascribed to aging. Exactly. Well, but I want you to expand that because I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think it is either to tell you the truth. And, you know, you, you and I have also talked about this paper from David Sinclair. And yeah, I love that. I know you, had, you didn't particularly care for it, but he does a nice review of the- He uh, does. It's a great review. And, you know, David is a, is a friend of both of ours and I've had him on my podcast and I know you've talked to him as well. And David is, but I think the, the point that I really want to make and sort of highlight here and really put a fine discussion on is exactly what you're suggesting, that aging, the immune compromise, the insulin resistance that comes with aging is not inevitable. It's an assumption because everyone else does it because 88% of the population is metabolically unhealthy. But the narrative here is very important because if we can escape the immunologic sort of dysfunction and insulin resistance that so often accompanies aging, then we can totally change our lifestyle. It's an empowering perspective versus an inevitability. And that's my fear is that David's perspective is, a, is not highlighting enough of what we can do to avoid these things in humans. And that's the only issue that I take with that article from him. Uh, yeah. But I think it's an it's amazing work. He's not, OCD, he's not OCD like us. On the, on the, well, <laughs> but he's, smart, he's a smart cookie for sure. He's a definitely a smart guy. And I think that... Um, you know, for better or for worse, he, he um, sometimes benefits from collaborations with people like us who can discuss um, a little more of the context of all this stuff. So, so in this study, this is one of these, it's definitely a detailed study, but this is exactly what I'm talking about. That This is from Nature Medicine, and it was published, I believe, even this year or last year. And they're doing what is called multi-omics, high-dimensional longitudinal monitoring, monitoring, and they're, what they're looking for is immune age and metabolic age. And you can look at multiple measures of immunologic aging by looking at different varying proportions of immune cell subsets. And we'll probably get into that in more detail later, 
this is all very esoteric and it looks kind of complex on the screen, but the takeaway, the very high level from that paper is that immune aging is associated with relative changes in different types of immune system response. And what's very interesting is we see these same types of immune system response changes mirrored in people who have more severe coronavirus outcomes. And I'll just clarify that to make sure everybody understands. So one of the pretty classic changes that we see associated with insulin resistance, obesity, metabolic syndrome, these are all synonyms, is overactivation of the innate immune system with decreasing activity in the adaptive immune system. Said another way or characterized another way, we can look at the cytokines associated with different T helper subsets. I don't want to get too granular here, but what we generally see at a high level is that, um, the, that certain cytokines for T helper 2 tend to predominate over T helper 1, and you get changes in the way the innate and adaptive immune systems are responding to invaders. And that's what we see in people as they age. That's associated with activation of different inflammasomes like the NLRP3 inflammasome, which is kind of more associated with that innate immune system. So I'll just pause for a moment. Most of your listeners will know this. The innate immune system is, is the stuff that's always activated. It's always on the front row. It's dendritic cells, it's macrophages, it's natural killer cells, it's neutrophils. The adaptive immune system is T cells and B cells. And so basically what we're seeing is, yeah. It's also your physical barrier, the epithelial cells that prevent the organisms from coming in. Yeah. And so what we see in, um, what we see in immunologic compromise, what we see in insulin resistance is that the innate immune system gets overactivated at the expense of the adaptive immune system. And you might say, oh, that's good. One part of the immune system is more activated, but what you end up happening, what you have happening is that the adaptive immune system doesn't, uh, isn't able to be activated properly and the resolution of the inflammation doesn't happen in the way it should. And this is exactly what we see with coronavirus and so many people who are so tragically perishing or having severe outcomes, but having this cytokine storm. And that's when you get an overactivation of one part of the immune system and the other part of the immune system can't really calm it down. Your body sets a huge fire and none of the firemen who are supposed to come and, and set it, you know, kind of quell the blaze show up and your immune system goes overactivated. So that's just a, a kind of a, a little dipping the toe into the water here and a foreshadowing what we'll talk about today. But the overarching principle is that it's not biologic age in the sense of how many years we've been alive. It's biologic age in terms of immune and metabolic age, and those are more malleable than we are led to believe. And that's something that both you and I believe strongly, but that Western medicine hasn't caught on yet. You know, I'm taught in medical school, you were taught in medical school, I'm sure, hey, it's just a disease of aging. And I say, no, 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 no. It's, it's totally malleable, and we can change that. That's great, yeah. So, and, and, and from that perspective, what we, we have a totally different, you know, way to attack or way to think about coronavirus. If you look at the news media, like I said, it's a lot of fear-based messaging. It's a lot of fear that's aimed at saying, hey, here's a new spike of the virus. Even today, as we're talking, the news media is reporting on new spikes of virus and it's, it's popping up here, it's popping up there. But nobody's really talking about what you can do to change your susceptibility to this virus. And that's what I want to empower people to understand is that this immunologic tolerance, this insulin resistance paradigm has not been discussed at all, despite the fact that there's tons of evidence that, that it's really, really important. And I mean, you and I have already shared articles um, that speak to this. 
and um, you will recognize both of these articles. So this is one of the most striking ones, the association of blood glucose outcomes, uh, blood glucose control and outcomes in patients with COVID-19 and pre-existing type 2 diabetes. And basically what they're finding is that when the blood sugar is well controlled and there's less glycemic variability, people do better with coronavirus. Hmm, that's okay. That makes more sense. But when people do have much higher levels of glycemic variability, that is presumed more insulin resistance, worsen control, they do much worse. And so there's really no question at this point that glycemic variability, overall metabolic status, overall metabolic health are critical. And then but the you, mistake here is not to get that control with, with drugs or pharmacology. Exactly. How do we do that with lifestyle? And we can talk about that for sure. So this is another paper that you and I have, have talked about, you and I have shared, and it's, it's a great easy index, the triglyceride to glucose index. Mm -hmm. And imagine that there's an association of the insulin resistance marker, the TYG index, this is fasting triglycerides, fasting glucose, with the severity and mortality of COVID-19. This should be, in my opinion, mainstream news headlines. And the headline should be, you can be stronger against coronavirus. You can have a stronger immune system. You can decrease your risk of having a severe coronavirus outcome. But instead, yeah. it's mostly fear. It's hide in your homes. What's the next drug that's going to save us? So yeah. That's an unusual marker. I mean, we know about the triglyceride to HDL ratio as being probably one of the most accurate predictors for heart disease. But the triglyceride to glucose, fasting glucose, uh, was a new one for me. So, but it was, so I hadn't seen it before. Yeah. And, you know, in, in my book, I talk about triglyceride or triglyceride to HDL ratio. I think it's a great ratio. Mm -hmm. As an aside, so many um, physicians or in the people in the health space get so hung up on LDL. But most people miss the importance of the other lipid markers that are super easy to get. Triglycerides and HDL tell you so much, especially the ratio mm -hmm. in the majority of people. I think in the near future, we're going to get some clinical indices of HDL function, which are going to make LDL obsolete. And we will, because there will be so much research that shows a discordance between levels of LDL in individuals who are doing low carb diets or who are metabolically healthy and may have a higher LDL but it also a higher HDL and a lower triglyceride. And I think in those people, you will see a very robust HDL function and all of the scientists in the lipid sphere will be left scratching their heads and saying, there's so much discordance here. How can people have a high LDL and yet very good HDL function and low cardiac risk? And I think that that will hopefully be the beginning of sort of the dismantling of the LDL-centric hypothesis or LDL-centric paradigm for cardiovascular disease. But as we said in the beginning of this show, what we know very clearly is these are all connected. And this is what's so interesting to me is trying to connect the dots and understanding that cardiovascular health is immune health. That is immunometabolism. That's exactly what we're talking about here. That, that what you do to improve your heart health is also what you do to improve your immune health, is also what you do to improve your brain health, is also how you decrease your risk of Alzheimer's is also how you decrease your risk of seasonal flu and every other single infectious illness that you will all encounter for the rest of your lives. It's one thing rather than 60 different drugs that the pharmaceutical industry is trying to just band-aid on top of band-aid off band-aid, which is why that paradigm doesn't work. Absolutely. No question about it. 
And so that's just such a scary thing. Now, since we're on the topic of, of LDL, I want to share a little bit about that that I saw with coronavirus. And um, what you'll see here is also pretty striking that when people go to the hospital with coronavirus, low levels of LDL are associated with more severity of COVID-19. And so here are the, here are the results. LDL-C and total cholesterol levels were significantly lower in COVID-19 patients as compared with normal subjects. There were significant and gradual decreases in LDL-C um, and total cholesterol hmm. in all of the groups, so severe and across all three groups. And so to me, this is just a really interesting idea in two, in two ways. In the book, The Carnivore Code, I, I challenge this LDL hypothesis, this LDL-centric hypothesis of cardiovascular disease, and I share a lot of data about how important in the immune system LDL actually is. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing in this study, that when your body is doing an immunologic thing, when your body is fighting a pathogen, it totally makes sense that the LDL would be a part of that, and either LDL is consumed or those who have lower LDL are more susceptible to infection. And this is something that we see over and over. And there are even genetic syndromes of very low LDL, specifically one called Smith-Lemley-Oppitz syndrome, involving a genetic polymorphism and an enzyme that makes cholesterol. And in this situation, people with this syndrome have very bad infections and they can be rescued by giving them egg yolks. <laughs> So these people are given cholesterol in the form of egg yolks, or they're given supplemental cholesterol, and they do much better. And it's pretty clear that cholesterol, which is packaged into this LDL lipoprotein particle, is intimately involved in the immune response. And so in someone who is metabolically healthy, a higher LDL above 100 or 150 or even 200 milligrams per deciliter might not be the horrible thing that we've all been taught it is, especially if the HDL the triglycerides, the triglyceride to glucose index, that glycemic variability are all pointing toward metabolic health. And papers like this, I mean, multiple papers like this have come out with coronavirus suggesting that those with lower LDL do worse. And the second part of this that I really want to just point out to people- Before you jump in, let me give yeah. you an anecdotal confirmation and testimonial. Yeah, please um, do. I've got beta thalassemia. And as a consequence of that, I was convinced <laughs> for the first 65 years of my life that uh, this was responsible for producing a low cholesterol because my dad had low cholesterol too. And there's nothing I could do to increase it. But I went on the car, I, I started a carnivore-ish diet. I wasn't I love a it. carnivore. And- for the first time in my life, my cholesterol rose over 200. I mean, it was like, it's like 150. It, it was as low as 75 when I was younger, which is insane. If I didn't know anything to do to correct it. So it's, it, that is interesting because I didn't recall reading that in your book about the low LDL being a risk factor for infections. So I'm, but I was so grateful that it, op, that it normalized by following a carnivorous diet. And I think that that's such an interesting alternative narrative because most physicians would say, Joe, you've got a, you've got a uh, cholesterol 75. That's great. But here we might say- <laughs> that, was that was total cholesterol. That's incredibly low. <laughs> that's incredibly low. And so, but here now we can say, is that higher cholesterol, both LDL and other particles, HDL we know has an immune role too. That's probably giving you an immunologic protection. And these are epidemiology studies, but I note many studies in the book that associate longevity and 
persistence of mental function and mental clarity with higher levels of LDL as people age. There's the Leiden 85 plus study. There are many studies like that that say that, hey, if you look at people who are over the age 65, those who live the longest have the highest cholesterol. So doesn't that just break the model and really challenge the paradigm that there's definitely more to heart disease than just a high LDL equals heart disease. And the hypothesis that I advance in my book and in my work and other people also uh, suggest is that, hey, it's about metabolic health. It's about context. This LDL is a valuable immunologic particle and we can't just get so myopic looking at LDL. We have to think about it in terms of all these other measures, just like we do with coronavirus. And that is what's so interesting is that, hey, we're thinking about these things in the same way for all these diseases, whether it's infectious, metabolic, cardiovascular, et cetera. So super interesting stuff. What I neglected to mention in your intro is that you've also started this regular series, Controversial Carnivore, is it? Is it? Controversial so Thoughts. Controversial thoughts. That's what it was. Yeah. By Carnivore MD. So uh, if you wanted to, because you, you're pretty good at shooting from the hip with respect to some of these, it, you can address some of the most egregious uh, items you're perceiving now as a result of this planned scandemic. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to coronavirus, what we're seeing now is a virus, SARS-CoV-2, um, which is homologous to SARS-CoV-1, which is homologous to the MERS virus, which is homologous to other coronaviruses that we've seen throughout human history. And like other viruses, every virus is going to have a certain level of infectivity and a certain level of virulence. And what we're, I think that we're now, you know, many months into the coronavirus pandemic and I think it's important for all of us to try and understand the data. And throughout all of this, I've been struggling or just really working hard <laughs> to understand the reality of what's happening with this virus and how to move forward with all of this, because it's quite a challenging time that we're in now. We've had lockdowns for months and months. We've now come out of lockdowns as we're coming out of lockdowns. Most mainstream news media outlets are suggesting that the virus is spiking again. And yet, if we look at the numbers, at least at this point in time, what we really see is that deaths are not spiking. Hospitalizations are bumping a little bit, but it kind of brings me back to this question that I think we should all be asking. And again, this is just a question that we should all ask, is what is the news media's real intention here? And, and what are the motivations? And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I think that I don't, I don't believe in necessarily you know, conspiracy theory without examining it. I think in today's world, nothing is conspiratorial because we don't even know what's true. We can't often say what's up versus down. And so I'm going to consider all the theories that I can and examine them closely. But when I hear the news media say the coronavirus cases are spiking, I go to the numbers. I go to Worldometer. I go to other numbers, uh, you know, repositories. And I look and I see, you know, the actual number of cases across the United States isn't really spiking that much. And the number of deaths in the United States isn't spiking. And so what's going on? So I'm seeing a discordance between those things. And so I just want to point that out to the listener or the watcher that if you're concerned about coronavirus, listen to the mainstream news media narrative. It's almost all fear-based. And just as we've been talking about in this podcast, there's been so little discussion of what are the malleable things that we can do as humans to make our immune system stronger, which should really be the majority of the focus right now. But instead it's now, are we going to need more lockdowns? 
should we doing, be doing more social distancing? When is the next drug coming? What about this drug? What about that drug? When are we going to get a vaccine? Nobody's talking about how to actually change your metabolic health in a positive way. And as you're saying, Dr. Mercola, the importance of vitamin D, I know you're going to do a whole series on that. And I can share a couple of articles yeah, about vitamin not D. Even a but series. It's, it's a, a, a project. A uh, compendium. <laughs> No, it's not. A, no, no. It, it is actually, I mean, we're going to seek, elicit your help too, but all the major natu natural health sites are going to, it's a collaborative effort to spread this message to the elderly and, and the people of color community. So our, our target is over 100 million people, maybe even 200 million people. So it's, it's, a, it's a really uh, big project that we're, we're anticipating. But I, I, want to get back, I want to get back to the discordance of the numbers that you mentioned. And yeah. Uh, because it, it appears that, you know, there's many people, and I would include myself as among those, that believe that this is a, an effort by the, the conventional media to promote a, essentially propaganda. And one of the reasons that we're seeing an increase in the COVID-19, not COVID, the, the SARS-CoV-2 prevalence is because there's simply increase in the number of tests. Yes. What's most important is the number of deaths. So what's your, what's your take on that? Yeah, and I, I agree with you completely. Most of the news media outlets are adding that. It's like a little caveat at the end of their statement. They're saying there is more testing being done, but, but, but yes. We, if, if they put that in there at if all. If they put that in there, right? Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, right now when we're talking at this point in human history, most of the news media outlets are claiming that there's going to be a second wave or they're preparing for a second wave. And if you look at the data, it's just not showing up. It's just not showing up. And the numbers are not spiking across the United States or other countries. And deaths are not spiking in the United States but, or most states or other countries either. And I can you show would, data you would anticipate that. that in the summer. I mean, if this disease or infection is going to follow similar infections in the past, that typically in the summer, the rates go down for a wide variety of reasons, certainly vitamin D levels being one of them. But I think we might get a more accurate view of what might happen to us in the fall and the winter if we look at Brazil, which is in the Southern Hemisphere and is actually going through their winter now. Exactly. And I think there is a question of whether we're going to get a spike in the fall, which is again, why it's so interesting for me. So we have months of summer right now. And the mm -hmm. messaging I think should not be, don't go outside or let's do a second lockdown. The, the, the messaging should be, you have sun right now for the sake of your life your children's life, your grandparents' life, your parents' life, go in the sun, go outside and eat, and eat these foods and understand how to become metabolically healthy. So that should be the messaging that I think we're seeing and we're not. And I agree with you that, that in the fall, we probably will see another surge or we might see another surge depending on how deep into the fall we get and how much sun people are able to get this summer in the United States. But it's a challenging thing. And that brings us into discussions of immune tolerance or rates of infection and rates of infectivity. I think this is kind of a complex discussion. I'd like to share a little bit of data regarding- well, Before we go there, hold that thought. I want you to go back because I neglected to ask you for your specific recommendation that if you were in charge or at least a consultant for the propaganda that conventional mainstream news is putting out, what you, and they accepted the fact that it really probably would be a a sound idea to become metabolically flexible and, and less insulin resistant. What would you recommend as the top two or three strategies to achieve that goal? Yeah, it's, it's a great question and it's incredibly simple. It starts with eliminating processed carbohydrates, 
processed sugars, and processed vegetable oils. I think that from a food perspective, those are the key sort of evils that are really wreaking havoc on our metabolism. And if you look around at what people in the grocery store are still buying and what the majority of our population eats, it is those foods, processed carbohydrates, processed grains, processed sugars, and processed vegetable oils. And the processed vegetable oils would be things like corn, canola, soy, and safflower. And I want to I wanna share something probably else. the most pernicious. Yes. I mean, if you had to eliminate only one set of foods, I would say it would be the industrially processed omega-6 vegetable oils. They, they yes. are, they, and you've done really good podcasts before on that. And look at this, Joe. This is from the WHO. They want uh, you to eat soy, <laughs> canola, sunflower, and corn oils. The WHO is recommending this. And they're saying don't eat saturated fats from fatty meat, butter, car, uh, palm, coconut, cream cheese, ghee, and lard. Don't eat natural animal fats. Eat, I mean, fish, avocado, nuts, olive oil, way better than these following ones right here. Soy, canola, sunflower, and corn oils. That to me- Well, the first, the first four though were okay, but they mix in the bad ones. Exactly, and they're confusing yeah. people. Oh, absolutely, because there's a little truth. And that's the way to confuse people. You give them a little bit of truth and mix in the bad stuff with it. And I think that if you look at that list, it's very clear that, well, my concern is that, um, you know, healthy fish, avocados, nuts, and olive oil are much more expensive than soy, canola, sunflower, and corn oils. And so if you give that as a mainstream recommendation from the World Health Organization, what are most people going to eat? I think that just in terms of availability, they're going to get corn, canola, soy, safflower, peanut, and really the devil's in the details here. The devil's in the details. Those polyunsaturated vegetable oils highly oxidizable and very metabolically damaging. And in addition to processed sugars, really problematic. And I, so I think, yes, start with the vegetable oils. I did a podcast with Kate Shanahan, talked about that. I also that talked about a, that, that with- great, That was, we should put a link in the, in the, uh, the, the article on that because it was a really good interview. She, I, I like Kate, she's really great. Yeah, she's great. And, uh, but the part of the reason these fats are such so problematic is unlike sugars, which you burn off pretty quickly, you might get a little spike in your, in your insulin levels and, and maybe raise your glycosylated hemoglobin. Uh, but it's short term, it's a few hours at most. Whereas those vegetables persist for months and they get embedded in your cell membranes and become a structural part of your body that you have to replace at some point in the future. And in the meantime, it's damaging your body every time it's in there, every moment it's in there. It's, that's such a great thing. And I, I think hopefully the listener and watchers will visualize that, that when you're eating vegetable oils, they become a part of you. Every cell in your body is made of these membranes. And if those membranes are composed mostly of polyunsaturated fatty acids, especially these omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids from processed, bleached, deodorized seed oils, you have like little firecrackers in the cell membranes of every cell in your body that are just waiting to be lit. They're just so susceptible. I mean, you know, they're just going to explode and create all this oxidative stress, all these free radicals. And that is, that's essentially one of the pathways by which humans develop insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction. There are many pathways, but one of the pathways is inflammation and oxidative stress. In fact, that's how our body signals that there's and overabundance of calories. If, if we're overconsuming calories, especially in the form of processed foods, which is where the processed 
sort of vegetable oils, the processed grains and the processed sugars come into the play. When we overconsume foods like that, which are much easier to overconsume because they short circuit our satiety mechanisms and we get this overabundance, this excess calories, then our body actually puts the brakes on insulin signaling and says, hey, insulin don't come and signal at this cell because we're already full of nutrients. And one of the ways it does that is with reactive oxygen species. So you can synthetically create a state of insulin resistance by creating more reactive oxygen species in your body. And in a way that mimics your own endogenous, your body's own internal biochemical signal to insulin to say, hey, wait a minute, I'm already full of nutrients. So you can get insulin resistant by overeating mixed macronutrients, fat and carbohydrates together, which are very easy to overeat, especially when they're processed carbohydrates and processed sugars and processed vegetable oils. Or if you just eat a whole bunch of vegetable oils and you create this state of excess sort of polyunsaturated fatty acids in your membranes, it's just so unstable that it can become very damaging and that can create inflammation in the human body as well. Could you address this ostensible paradox uh, that those who eat a low-fat diet, uh, shades of uh, Ornish or Pritikin prior to him, uh, seem to do pretty well. I mean, even type 1 diabetics. Or those who eat a low-carb diet seem to do pretty well. But as you just referenced, when you combine high-fat, high-carb, it's a metabolic disaster. So just give us a short summary to take on. Because you, you actually interviewed two type 1 diabetic uh, clinicians who teach this. And it was a very interesting uh, dialogue you had with them. Yeah, so at a metabolic level, you're absolutely right that high carbohydrate, low fat diets can improve insulin sensitivity. And there are many studies of overfeeding of exclusively carbohydrates that show that you can give someone, you can overfeed bagels, for instance, Mm -hmm. and you really won't gain a lot of weight, but only if you have bagels, right? (laughs) Only if you're only if you're Right. Only if you're very low fat. So, so it is true that a very low fat, high carbohydrate diet can improve metabolic health. Now, my problem with that type of diet is nutritional and it's micronutrient wise. And this is my concern for people who have been doing that program um, or doing fruitarian diets. And we see this over and over. This is my concern with plant-based diets, which often become high carb, low fat. Metabolically, you may improve in the short term, but nutritionally, you will become deficient almost 100% of the time because plant foods don't have all the nutrients that humans need. You can get some nutrients from plant foods, but as I talk about in my book, they're much less bioavailable in plant foods, and really animal foods are the king. Plant foods may be used as survival foods by our ancestors or by humans today until we can get more bioavailable, more nutrient-rich animal foods, especially the organ meats. But to construct a diet that is exclusively high carbohydrate, low fat, like a fruitarian diet or a strict plant-based diet, you are going to get nutrient deficiencies. And I've heard over and over sad, tragic stories of people who do this type of diet, who work with these clinicians that I interviewed, and they have catastrophic metabolic and nutritional consequences long-term, whether it's resurgence of autoimmune disease, whether it's profound nutrient deficiencies, this is a big deal. And perhaps this is a great segue to talking about the nutrients that our immune system needs to be ideal. And we can wrap it back into coronavirus because one of the most important nutrients that you and I have both talked about is zinc. Mm -hmm. And 
we can talk about zinc with regard to hydroxychloroquine. We know that the chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine are zinc ionophores, which means they help zinc get into our cells. But even independent of the mechanisms of these drugs, which may be beneficial, we're still waiting to see in coronavirus, humans need certain minerals and vitamins to have an, a healthy immune system. And so earlier in this talk, we talked about the immunologic signaling at the level of the metabolic sort of milieu. And now, and what we talked about there was the importance of insulin sensitivity. And we can talk about why that's important in a moment. But the other piece of the equation that I think is so critical is that we need certain nutrients for our immune system to function well. So this is, I really see this as a two-pronged attack. This is just one great summary paper, immune function and micronutrient requirements change over the life course. But in this paper, they talk about the many nutrients that can compromise immune function. And I wanna highlight this for people, particularly vitamins A, C, D, E, B2, which is riboflavin, B6, which is pyridoxine, B12, folic acid, folic acid, which should be folate, that's actually a misprint in this study, mm -hmm. iron, selenium, and zinc. And so let's just look at this list. Where do humans get these vitamins from? They get them from animal foods predominantly. Vitamin C, robustly found in plant foods. But the rest of these vitamins, A, D, riboflavin, pyridoxine, B12, folate, iron, selenium, and our friend zinc. In animal foods? I thought it was mostly plants. Which one? Folate. Oh, well, bioavailable folate from organ meats like liver and kidney. Okay. You can get folate from foliage, but we can talk about the potential problems with that in terms of bioavailability of that folate. But in terms of bioavailable vitamins, and again, we talked about this with, um, in my book, The Carnivore Code, vitamin A, vitamin riboflavin, B2, B6, B12, iron, selenium, zinc, you really can't get those from plant foods. So if you want to have a robust immune system, you want to be metabolically healthy, you don't want to be insulin resistant, and you need to have nutrient adequacy in your diet. And how do you get nutrient adequacy? You get these micronutrients from bioavailable sources in organ meats and in the muscle meat of animals. And as we talked about in the first episode, organ meats are things like liver and kidney and other more exotic organ meats, which not everybody's going to eat. So one of my greatest passions that I'm super excited to share with you and the audience is that I've gone ahead and created these as supplements in my own company now so that people can get desiccated organs that have liver and heart and kidney and pancreas and spleen. So if people want to do that and they're interested in getting organ meats as a source of these micronutrients, they can check out heartandsoilsupplements.com. That's my sort of new passion. But in general... And the, so the raw materials are sourced from, I'm assuming, organic grass-fed animals grass-fed, grass-finished regenerative animals okay. um, in, the, in New Zealand, and we're developing a supply chain in the U.S. We're going to be the only, very soon, we will be the only company producing desiccated organ supplements that has a U.S. regenerative-based supply chain. So you know Will Harris of uh, sure. White Oak Pastures and these really great farms doing amazing work, and we're trying to support those regenerative farms in the U.S., like we're already supporting them in New Zealand. But these organ meats are so hard to get, and what's so interesting is if you put it in a pill and you desiccate it, you low temperature dehydrate it, these nutrients are preserved and people can really get more of these critical nutrients. I mean, obviously eat the organs as freshly as possible if you can, but if you can't get them, 
these desiccated organs are so valuable. So I had to. So it excited is How many tablets do you need or you suggest? Is it 50, 100, 200 a day? <laughs> so when you desiccate an organ, it's kind of, it's low temperature dehydration, meaning that you lower the pressure in the system and then you can pull the water out at a very low temperature. Most people may be familiar with the way that organs are dehydrated. You raise the temperature to 140 degrees. When you desiccate, you can keep the temperature of the organ at room temperature because you lower the pressure. This is one of the sort of these laws in physics. If you lower the pressure, then you can decrease the temperature and dehydrate something very easily. And so it preserves the nutrients. So you can take two to, you know, you can, you can take an ounce of liver and compress it, kind of dehydrate it, desiccate it into about six capsules. So six capsules a day of liver, we have one supplement that's liver and bone marrow together, is about equivalent to a half an ounce of liver and half an ounce of bone marrow. So six, six, six capsules a day would be a great start. Is it a capsule or a tablet? It's a capsule. Okay. Is there a reason yeah. you want a capsule? Because typically you can fit more material in a compressed tablet. Oh, just because that, if we use a capsule, we don't have to use any binders. And we didn't want to use any binders. We just want to use a gelatin capsule sourcing the gelatin as well as we can. And then you just take this desiccated material and you put it in the caps. You don't have to bind it in anything. It kind of sticks better. Good, good. Yeah. So, but that's the, that's the idea that we need these nutrients from animal foods. And to it's, your original it's question. It's, it's probably the best multivitamin supplement you can get. I couldn't agree with you more. And like I said, if people can eat real liver or real pancreas or real spleen, then do that. And the supplements are just meant to be there as a supplement, as an adjunct for people that are traveling or people that can't get it normally. But I, I agree. And I've said the same thing. You're echoing, you're echoing my sentiments exactly, that animals eaten nose to tail, that's the best multivitamin that humans can ever get. And that's what our ancestors got. And so much of the research from my book and the research with this company, this hard and soil company that I've developed, has just continued to show me that eating animals nose to tail is such a really incredible piece of our heritage as humans. And it makes us so strong. I mean, where do you get bioavailable vitamin A if you're not eating liver? You might get it from egg yolks, but you get a lot of it from liver. Or where do you get riboflavin from? Riboflavin just isn't present in much in the plant kingdom. It's not that present in muscle meat, but it's very present in heart and liver. And it just, it just really rounds out human nutrition and helps us be so much better. I think our ancestors knew this and they they got an animal, they ate the organs first, they treasured them. It was such a huge part of their life. And for our immune system, it's this missing link, right? The first piece is don't eat processed food, don't eat processed carbohydrates, don't eat processed sugars, don't eat processed vegetable oils. But then the other piece is nutritional adequacy. And where do you get your nutrients from? Where do you get those nutrients that those, that, that paper is talking about? If you really dig into it, the best source is animal meat and especially animal organs. So that to me is so, I think it could change the world. And as you're saying, it's the best multivitamin ever and it's really a food. Yeah, it's great. Hey, before we go to the next part, I wanted to, to skate back to the metabolic flexibility and sun resistance, uh, a treatment. And you didn't mention uh, time-restricted eating, compressing the window at which you're eating food as a, an effective strategy. It, in my viewpoint, it seems to be a powerful strategy. So important. Even if you're not eating healthy food. I mean, that's what the animal studies show. But if you're eating healthy food, it's like crazy good. So I'm wondering, uh, with your broad experience, both personally and with the people you counsel, what you've noticed with respect to improving insulin resistance uh, by implementing time-restricted eating. 
I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you're, you're hitting on this great point. So thank you for mentioning that. I think it starts with food and then, it, and then the next part is lifestyle. And a huge part of that lifestyle is being in the sun and exercising. And perhaps the most important part of that lifestyle is time-restricted feeding. And that, you're absolutely right. Animal studies show that if you just do time-restricted feeding, you can even feed those animals not the best diet and they get improvements. Well, imagine what happens when you feed someone a good diet a diet that's rich in animal foods, non-processed plant foods if you want to include them, especially organ meats or desiccated organ supplements, and you do it in a small window. I do it every day, Joe. I, I found that I sleep better. I just feel better when I stop eating by 3 or 4 p.m. in the afternoon, which means that my time-restricted feeding is a breakfast meal and then an early dinner, and I eat two meals a day, and how I many, try to get at least hours? 16 hours. What's that? So you go for eight. You go for eight hours of restriction. Seven, six, to, yeah, seven. If I can do seven, I'll do seven, but sometimes it's eight. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've gotten a little more rigid. I, I, I really eat from 10 to two. Uh, and it's easy for me to do. I mean, there's absolutely no hunger. I just don't, don't crave foods at all. But I, I'm not sure that that's particularly healthy for the long term. And I think you need to go to extend it to six to eight hours occasionally because I just don't think your body's going to like going with it, out food for 20 hours a day. It's powerful medicine that can be overused. But yeah. what's so interesting is that when we discover powerful medicine, we have to then discover how we dose it. Yes. I've, I've definitely had clients who were doing one meal a day, which might be considered to be the best uh, exemplary, example, example of time-restricted feeding, and their testosterone went down. And then when he started eating twice a day and including more calories – his testosterone tripled. So it was a you know a middle a young male, 35-year-old gentleman whose testosterone went to three or 400 as a total. And I said, eat more, eat more often. And his testosterone went back to 900 on a carnivore diet. So when people say that their hormones are dropping on either a ketogenic, low-carb, or carnivore diet, the first question I have is, how much are you eating and how often are you eating? And I think that for most people, you can find that sweet spot around six to eight hours which isn't gonna affect your hormones, but it's still gonna give you this really large window of time-restricted feeding. And I think that in our circle and the people that listen to this podcast and this, this show, we're, a, we're an elite group. I think that a lot of people listening to this are in the 12% of metabolically healthy people. And if they're not, they're gonna be in this, they're gonna be closer to it after this podcast. But yeah, and interestingly, the other 12% is the 12% of the population eats more than 12 hours a day. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, there's probably a correlation between the amount of time you're eating food and metabolic flexibility. Yeah, and I think that even, so one of the things that I've been experimenting with recently, and you and I have had conversations about this, is including some carbohydrates in my carnivore diet mm -hmm. occasionally. I did a whole episode on my podcast about continuous glucose monitoring. There's this great company, NutriSense, that is now offering CGMs to people direct to consumer. And so I wore a, a CGM, a continuous blood glucose monitor for a month. And I included honey in my diet for a couple of reasons that I can talk about. But what I found was that by having some honey a couple of days a week, um, my blood sugar would bump a little bit, but would then would come back to normal very quickly, suggesting very good levels of insulin sensitivity. That's what you want to see. And doing that for extended amounts of time did not cause me to develop insulin resistance. My blood glucose response was still exquisitely sensitive. But what I saw was that my overall fasting blood sugar was lower when I included some carbohydrates. And this gets back to kind of the metabolic piece and metabolic flexibility, that if we do a ketogenic diet for too long, mm -hmm. I, I think the human body is adapted to this evolutionarily, but we will start to see that fasting glucose creep up and up and up.
And if you just give your body some glucose occasionally or glucose and fructose, I think it's totally reasonable in small quantities, you will see that fasting glucose go much lower down to uh, a level of 70 or 80, some thereabouts. So I think that's a much healthier level for a fasting blood glucose. In the continuous blood glucose monitor podcast that I did, you'll see an example in the YouTube video of someone who was doing a zero carb diet for five years and their fasting blood sugar is always 120. It's always 120. So you have to think, wow, how much more glycation is happening to natural killer cells, these cells of the immune system that we really want to keep as you know, agile as possible with a fasting blood sugar of 120 all the time. Your body can do it, but is it ideal? And so also from an electrolyte preservation perspective, I found that occasionally eating some, I would say ancestrally consistent carbohydrates, you might even consider honey to be an animal-based carbohydrate in some ways, since it's from bees. Um, that seems to allow my blood sugars to be much lower when I'm fasting. I'll get small bumps, maybe 30 to 40 milligrams per deciliter. They go back to baseline within an hour and they stay very low and my overnight blood sugars are very low. And overall, what I see with my blood sugar is that a little bit of carbohydrate coming in occasionally allows for much more metabolic flexibility for me. And I think that's what it's all about. I think ketogenic low carb diets are super valuable. And if we leverage them, like we found this powerful medicine, now we figure out how to dose it. Just like we do with intermittent fasting, you can overdo it, I think. Just mm -hmm. like you can, you know, I think you can overdo a low carb diet, you can overdo intermittent fasting. I mean, overdoing intermittent fasting would essentially be straight starvation. <laughs> and then people, you know, so we know there's a, it's a U-shaped curve for many things, but that's to your point of metabolic flexibility, flexibility handling glucose so that we don't get to the point of physiologic glucose sparing or glucose refusal all the time. And that came up also in the podcast that I did with those folks who were uh, fruitarians. We kind of talked about the differences mm -hmm. there. So I think that's a great strategy for people, but incorporating that time-restricted feeding so valuable, such an incredible measure, which I think is what we see with the, the wild success of all discussions of fasting and time-restricted feeding in the media. But as you're saying, the real, the real win is eating good food, eating the highest quality food that allows you to be the most insulin sensitive in a time-restricted feeding window. And just going back to that original point about fat and protein or fat and carbohydrates together, as I said, you can, you can eat a lot of low carb or you can eat very low fat, high carb, but you will likely become um, nutrient deficient if you do that because you're going to have to eat so many carbohydrates. So I think that, and the reverse, as you're saying, you can do high fat, low carb, but the long-term problems with that one are metabolic inflexibility. So where's the sweet spot? I think the sweet spot is eating, in my opinion, it's eating an animal-based diet, not exclusively animals for all people, but realizing that animal foods have been incorrectly vilified, that they're an integral part of the human diet, including these organs, and including some of the healthiest carbohydrates, the non-processed carbohydrates, into your diet occasionally, and not going either you know, low-carb, high-fat all the time, or low-fat, high carb all the time, having a mix, but having a robust amount of protein throughout and then getting those micronutrients. I think that's a sweet spot for most people. And if you deviate from that, if you get that high carb, high fat meal, for many people, that's going to be a processed food meal. And that's really going to affect satiety negatively. And that's how, that's the first step on the road to insulin resistance for many people. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you for that summary. And I wanted to go back to the hydroxychloroquine slash zinc that you recommended. 
Yeah. Just to mention that, of course, the hydroxychloroquine by itself, or especially if given late in the disease, will not work at all. That's why a lot of these studies show it doesn't work. Uh, but it has to be given really early and with zinc. But interestingly, in the day that we're recording this, uh, the FDA, I believe, has just taken away any indication for using this drug in COVID-19 or coronavirus. So that probably means you can still prescribe it as a physician, but there's absolutely no insurance coverage for it. I don't know how expensive it is, but it's interesting the FDA has, has come down on it. Uh, but the alternative that I wanted to mention uh, is that you can use quercetin which is a polyphenol, uh, plant-based uh, uh, bioflavonoid, but uh, it has a lot of benefits. It's actually, it's a senolytic too. It works pretty well, uh, which might be helpful with uh, immunosenescence. But uh, as a short-term um, crutch, I guess our Band-Aid is pretty safe and, and effective, especially if it's used with zinc. And thank God that we can use that instead of hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, I definitely think that there is benefit to plant molecules as medications. I think that there's this, um, sometimes when people hear me talking about a carnivore diet or an animal-based diet, mm -hmm. they think, well, what about, aren't plants valuable as medications? I say, Absolutely, but is that the same thing as using them as food? That's the, that's the kind of nuance that I draw. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about glutathione as well, because I think that wraps together a lot of these conversations. Uh, I did a podcast on my show, Fundamental Health, and one of the most striking articles that I came across in preparation for that podcast was this one, which I'll show people. They can find it here. Um, endogenous deficiency of glutathione as the most likely cause of serious manifestations of death from novel coronavirus hypotheses based on literature data and observations. So this is just a hypothesis from this MD, PhD um, gentleman in Russia. But what's so interesting about this paper is that they present a small number of cases, but there are four cases here of individuals aged 34, 47, 44, and 56. Youngster. And what you'll see here is that the, um, the reactive oxygen species to glutathione ratio predicted the severity of the COVID outcome very well. And so this is exactly what we were kind of talking about before. Yeah. That the issue with that is a clinical assay. I never knew that was possible at ROS. Serum I think it's probably, I think it's one of these like research-based assays that's not okay. widely available, but it could be, right? If you actually yeah. look at the total plasma reactive oxygen. Sure. I wonder which ones they're measuring. Uh, I could look in the, and see here, yeah. But, um, but what you see in the ratios is that when the person has a low ratio, reactive oxygen species to glutathione, this is reduced glutathione, the GSH, 1.2. The patient became um, positive and the fever disappeared on the fourth day without any treatment. So very easy case, right? In this patient, patient number three, also age 44, so even younger than this other patient, with a very low BMI, 22.5. Yes, normal. Look at the ROS to GSH ratio, 34.6. 34.6, so very high reactive oxygen species relative to glutathione, this patient developed air hunger on the fourth day. They had a significant fever, hoarseness, myalgia, fatigue, persisting for 13 days. And their he glutathione died, was very low. Did he die on day 14? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if, I don't think they died, but <laughs> they, they might have. And this patient, this patient are similar thing. The reactive oxygen species to glutathione ratio was 6.9. And they had very severe, she was hospitalized, 
characteristic radiologic signs of COVID-19 pneumonia. And I guess what's so interesting for me about this is this evolving understanding of the oxidative stress that coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 is involved in. And this kind of wraps into the zinc story too, right? That, that zinc could be involved in many ways in mitigating this huge oxidative stress reaction. But my takeaway from that paper was, why do those people have such low glutathione in the first place? Probably nutritional, either underlying oxidative stress that mm -hmm. is causing them to be sort of, they don't even know about it, whether they're smokers or they have heavy metal toxicity or some other reason to have oxidative stress, like eating lots of processed vegetable oils or being insulin resistant or lots of processed sugar could cause it. That could cause low glutathione. Or EMF exposures. Yes, EMF exposures could cause it. Nutritional inadequacy of glycine. Mm -hmm. So as people will know, if they've heard you talk or me talk, glycine is this critical amino acid that occurs in the connective tissue of animals in collagen. And that is one of the three amino acids in both collagen and glutathione. And so if we're glutathione deficient and we get coronavirus, there's a real concern that that could be a very severe outcome. And it really shouldn't come as a surprise. Tangent question on uh, collagen. Any concerns about taking collagen if, if you have problems with oxalates? Because you know, I think it's... With the glycine and hydroxyproline, it increases oxalate production and excretion in the urine. I think it's very small in most people unless you have a pyridoxine deficiency. So if you look at that glyoxalate pathway, mm -hmm. um, the pathway that sort of determines where hydroxyproline and proline and how the glyoxalate is broken down in the human body, a pyridoxine deficiency may create more oxalates, but I think that is a very rare complication. I think most really people are okay. just fine with collagen. The very real problem with oxalates is people who are eating lots of spinach and <laughs> rhubarb and, and beets almonds. and almonds. Yeah. And so people should know um, in the book, in the carnivore code, there is a list of high oxalate foods and chocolate is very high in oxalates. You know, always taking lots of turmeric powder could create a lot of oxalates, as could medicinal mushrooms. There's conflicting data, but I really believe that chaga, if you overdose on chaga too much, it could create a lot of oxalates. So that's, that's the real problem for people. And oxalates are a significant issue. I mean, it's, it, it tends to become an issue when people follow a carnivore diet because they've usually been eating high oxalate foods their whole life, and then they're in the <laughs> excreting them because they're not eating anymore and that can cause a significant flare-up. Uh, so you have to be really careful. Yes, you do. And um, in, in the carnivore code, I found some really striking data that you'll find oxalates deposited in the breast tissue of women. There's concern that they may be an impetus or a nidus, as we say in medicine, toward the formation of carcinoma in situ or precancerous breast lesions in women. Um, when you inject oxalates into the mammary fat pad of mice and rats, they will develop cancers uh, wow. in those tissues. And oxalates are also found to be deposited in the thyroid gland of humans when they have no physiologic role there. And then if you look at people who have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, they actually have less oxalates in the thyroid. And you kind of scratch your head at first, but then you think, oh, is, part of the, is it possible that part of the immune response in Hashimoto's thyroiditis is the immune system coming in and clearing out the oxalates from the thyroid? We don't know, but in oxalosis, systemic oxalosis, the, 
the deposition of oxalates in the human body, not physiologically normal. <laughs> it happens yeah. in it happens in primary hyperoxalosis, PAH, right. which is a genetic condition with a polymorphism or a mutation in an enzyme in that glyoxalate pathway. And people with PAH get severe kidney stones. They often develop renal failure. They get systemic oxalosis. And so you can actually get levels of oxalate in the urine and the blood that are equivalent to someone with primary hyperoxalosis by eating something like a green smoothie. So this yeah. is, if, if you eat a green smoothie, don't just put almonds and spinach and rhubarb and all those things in there. Be careful. Yeah, I have another one for you. I read a study a few months ago that shows that the oxalates can actually deposit in the conduction pathway of the heart can lead to uh, arrhythmias. <sighs> Wow. I mean, we'll figure that one. I like to, I like to look that pH up and see if they, if they have problems with arrhythmias. That would be, interesting. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Mm. I wouldn't be surprised at all. I mean, it's, it's quite, it's quite striking, isn't it? I mean, yeah. oxalates should not be in it's that part of the, it is definitely an issue. And most people aren't aware of it. So, and I mean, when I was a raw vegan, I ate tons of kale, which is moderate oxalates, but I had lots of almonds. Spinach always bothered my stomach, but this is the idea with plants, right? Plants don't Swiss want to get jarred too. Swiss chard. Swiss chard. I. You know what's so funny, Joe, is when I used to eat Swiss chard as a raw vegan, it bothered my throat. It burned yeah. my throat, and I never understood it. But I think it was the oxalates in the in the chard. I would juice the chard. I remember going to Portland one time to run a marathon, and I brought my juicer on the plane. Yeah. And I brought chard with me, and here I am just drinking chard juice, and I just. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't like it. It burned the back of my throat. And this is probably the oxalates in the chart. Yeah. I had a similar story. I was like, I had, a, I had planted one of my first gardens about over 20 years ago. And uh, I was doing the same thing, juicing chart every day. And I planted way more than I needed. I probably had 100 square feet of it. And I just got deathly sick from it. And I just realized, I thought I developed an allergy to char, but uh, it was just toxicity is what it was. Accumulated toxicity. And so this is kind of the message or the, the interesting hypothesis that I've arrived at that, hey, humans can eat some plants for a short amount of time in a survival situation, but you don't want to make them the majority of your diet, you know, like, and, and that's kind of the idea of a carnivore-ish type diet. It's so cool to hear that you're experimenting with carnivore-ish. I talk about that in my book, the idea that if you are eating mostly animal foods and you are getting the least toxic plant foods, um, that in my opinion would be the non-sweet fruit and the fruit from plants, the parts of plants that plants don't really, they're not trying to defend the fruit as much, you know? Plants don't want their stems and leaves and roots to get eaten, and especially not their seeds, where we find lectins and oxalates. But if you're eating the fruit occasionally, avocado, olives, berries seasonally, squash, as you tolerate, those are the least toxic parts of plants. And I think those can be used as reasonable adjuncts to animal foods for most people. I realized that many people may want to include some plant foods in their diet and those would be the best ones. And I've in the winter, this winter I'll have a cookbook coming out and I'll have all sorts of recipes with those carnivore ish foods. But in general, plant foods are survival foods and animal foods are the foods that we thrive on both in terms of nutrients, nutrient adequacy, the organ meats, all that kind of stuff. But we've got a few more slides on uh, glutathione and inflammation, if that's okay. I think it's pretty interesting stuff. So I want to share this one. I'm sure that you've seen this, Joe. Um, the, 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 uh, there's a large amount of data now about the pulmonary vascular endotheliolitis. Sure. So this is New England Journal of Medicine, you know, quite a, quite a 
uh, prestigious journal, Thrombosis and Angiogenesis. So what's going on here? What do we actually know about what coronavirus is doing in the human body? Well, this is a SARS-CoV-2 virus that appears to enter into the lungs. I'll come back to that study in a moment. It's a SARS-CoV-2 virus that appears to enter in the lungs and the type 2 alveolar cells via the ACE2 receptor. But then it also, interestingly, it also appears to have some pretty darn negative effects on the endothelium. And the endothelium are these lining cells of the blood vessels. And this is what I think is so interesting and scary. So this is an article from Science, and it's just showing that um, there's a new hypothesis suggesting that SARS-CoV-2 attacks the endothelial cells that line the blood vessels surrounding the lungs, air sacs, or alveoli. Um, a spiral of damage can result with an injured endothelial cells causing leak of fluid. So in this example, this is the alveolus. This is the sort of grape cluster of grape, grapes sac in the lungs where air is exchanged or oxygen is exchanged with the blood. Here is a blood vessel with these cells. Here is the endothelium. This is a type 2 alveolar cell. This is a type 1 alveolar cell. SARS-CoV-2 appears to come into the type 2 alveolar cell via the ACE2 receptor. But what also appears to happen, and this is sort of an illustration of the pathology here, is that there are ACE2 receptors in the endothelial cells of our body. These cells also have ACE2 receptors. And so this may be accounting for is the virus also getting into endothelial cells and causing this pathology that we're seeing as clots. There's now increasing pathology findings that are showing that in people with COVID-19, they're having more blood clots in their lungs. In this mm -hmm. one specifically, they looked at seven lungs obtained during autopsy from patients who died from COVID-19. Um, they compared them to um, people who died from influenza, A, H1N1, and 10 age-matched, uninfected control lungs. And what they found is people who had COVID had a histologic pattern in the peripheral lung with diffuse alveolar damage, perivascular T-cell infiltration. And they also, in the COVID-19 patients, had distinct vascular features, severe endothelial injury associated with the presence of intracellular virus and disrupted cell membranes, the pulmonary vessels, if people in people with COVID-19, widespread thrombosis and microangiopathy, little blood clots everywhere, mm -hmm. alveolar capillary microthrombi, nine times more prevalent in COVID-19 patients as in patients with influenza. Really kind of scary until we think about why this might be happening. And I think this relates back to glutathione. And it's really just showing us, again, the critical importance of optimal antioxidant status in this specific virus. So we know that glutathione is involved in immunity and inflammation of the lung. And what I fear is happening here is that people who are suffering severely from coronavirus are both metabolically unhealthy, they have insulin resistance, which could contribute to more oxidative stress, lowering levels of glutathione in their body and making them susceptible to this endothelial injury arising from the coronavirus infection. So it's a scary thing. Now, zinc is involved in that. In order to get proper glutathione status, we need zinc. We need zinc to affect sort of some antioxidant redox balance in the human body. And selenium is important. Glutathione is important. You know, we know that there are many enzymes involved in glutathione production, which are selenium dependent. And there is this interesting paper but there's an association between regional selenium status and the severity of COVID-19 outcome cases in China. And what does it show? It shows that the lower the selenium status, 
the worse the glutathione status. And you can see that here based on this population with the city hair population of selenium along the x-axis and the cure rate here, meaning that the lower the amount of selenium in the hair, the lower the cure rate. Why is this? It's probably because glutathione peroxidase and thioredoxin, redu thioredoxin uh, reductase are, are selenium-dependent enzymes. And these enzymes are intimately connected by controlling this antioxidant redox system. So what we're seeing is this huge immunologic injury, this imbalance in the innate and adaptive immune system. We're seeing insulin resistance and we're seeing diffuse oxidative damage. And it's all stuff that can probably be controlled with lifestyle. That's the huge takeaway. People may have also seen this set of studies. There's there's, before you go on, there's another element in that too. Uh, as I understand, the, um, when you have the infection with COVID with the SARS-CoV-2, you actually have a release of von Willebrand factor. And they actually form these dimers. And one of the precursors for glutathione is NAC, N-acetylcysteine. And actually, the ministering N-acetylcysteine, but the NAC by itself can disrupt those dimers of von Willebrand, which would actually improve the, the clotting or decrease the clotting potential and it can be used therapeutically in addition to serving as a precursor for glutathione. Absolutely. I think that I hope that in the future, I mean, everyone's running around trying to find a magical pharmaceutical. Yeah. I don't know why we're not studying. We, are, we got more than what we need. They, just, they, just, they, they just refuse to accept it. Yeah, we should be doing larger trials with vitamin C. We should be doing larger trials with glutathione. We yeah. should be doing tons of this. I mean, we should be using NAC. It's a completely safe thing. Yeah. Interesting. There are some innovative hospitals. There, there's a physician, Roger Schulte, who's like, I know you're double board certified. He has four birds reports. <laughs> he, he, he runs MedCram. I think you were on a podcast with him, if I'm not mistaken. You were, I think, Newsmax had you a book. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, he's a sharp cookie, I'll tell you. And, and he's an, an internist and he's a critical care uh, pulmonary, pulmonary medicine. So he, he, he puts, monitors these people's on the vents. But in his hospital, they're using all these measures, the vitamin C, the vitamin D, NAC, zinc, hydroxychloride. It's so great. It's like you, you would just hit the jackpot if you wind up in his hospital. You want to go to his hospital if you yeah, get sick. Yeah, yeah. But hopefully after listening to this podcast, you won't get sick in the first place. Yeah, that's the key. <laughs> Well, you know, we're, hopefully we're preaching to the choir. People are already doing this. But the key is that, and the point is preventive medicine is so much easier and more effective than treating something, a problem once you already have it. Then it becomes real challenging. It can be too late, actually. As you're suggesting with hydroxychloroquine, a lot of times it's being administered too late, right? Um, it's much harder to put that fire out. It's much better to prevent that fire. I, I couldn't agree with you more. But this is my great disappointment with coronavirus is that the news outlets are not talking about preventive medicine. They're just talking about reactive medicine and, and, and hiding from the virus. And I just don't think that we're going to be able to hide from nature. As we said, there's, there's going to be more infections. There's going to be more uh, issues. And if, if those who are susceptible to coronavirus with insulin resistance and diabetes are able to use this as a wake-up call and change their metabolic health, they will change the quality of life that, for the entire time that they're living. My dad is a perfect example of this, Joe. He's, he's, physician, 70, right? he's 70 years old. He's a retired internist. And I'm going to get him a continuous glucose monitor. And he's, you know, he's a little concerned about coronavirus, but he should be. He's 70 years old and he's not as metabolically healthy as he should be. But I'm encouraging him. And I have his son. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm encouraging him to improve his metabolic health. 
And the, the beauty of that might just be that if coronavirus is the impetus, if coronavirus is the trigger mm -hmm. that he needs to change his metabolic health, to use a continuous glucose monitor, to show himself his glycemic variability, and to understand how much risk that puts him at, or just to give him an indication that he's a little insulin resistant because he's eating bread or vegetable oil or not getting enough of these nutrients, then, and he makes a change, he's decreasing his risk of coronavirus, but he's also decreasing his risk of seasonal flu, diabetic complications, coronary artery disease, hypertension, stroke. I mean, the list goes on and on. Think cancer. about the list. What, yes, cancer, Alzheimer's disease. So that's what you and I are about. And that's but what I think that it's all I would focused on. I him on some Akatsu system too. I mean, that would be a great tool for him. Oh, it would be so good for him. It would change his life. Yes. So we can do. Yes, Katsu. That would be absolutely great for him because he doesn't work out enough. So yeah. I should get him those two things for his birthday, which is coming up. A CGM, yes. a CGM, CGM and Katsu. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Just a few more here that I think are so interesting. Endothelial cell infection and endotheliolitis with COVID-19, more of the same kind of data that COVID-19 is ending up in endothelial cells. And the take home is just that, hey, this is an inflammatory issue in endothelial cells, and that is connected with an imbalance in the oxidative reductive system in the human body, probably due to underlying deficiency of glutathione in many of these patients. This was a very scary headline that came out a few weeks ago. Doctors raced to understand inflammatory condition in kids, same thing in my opinion. It's looking like Kawasaki disease, which is an autoimmune sort of mm -hmm. attack on the blood vessels, especially the large blood vessels in kids. Um, but I think that if you look at this, it's going to be synonymous or it's going to be basically the same, not synonymous, but it's going to be analogous to what's happening in these people with these vascular endotheliolitis presentations. We're or, seeing or, or COVID toes. <laughs> yeah, COVID toes. We know that it's all connected with this endothelial dysfunction, mm -hmm. insulin resistance, oxidative stress, it's all the same. I just hope that people listening will, will hear this and be able to counter the fear in the mainstream media and understand how to take action. We're really not powerless. That's the message that I just want to get out to people. We're not powerless. And you know, this might be my favorite study. Um, I, I pulled up so many for us today. Uh, so there's this, I mean, I think that this is one of the cooler ones that I've found and this doesn't have anything to do with coronavirus, but I think it shows us the real take home point. And this is from, um, Robert Lustig and a number of other people. And it's a number of years old, 2017. But what you see in this study is if you restrict dietary fructose, fructose in children with obesity in an isocaloric model, meaning that. They had 41 children who had all their meals provided for nine days. So they controlled everything. All of these kids were obese and they took away all the fructose, fructose. They made the fructose very, very low. They didn't change the macronutrient ratios or the calories. Short-term isocaloric fructose restriction decreased liver fat, visceral adipose tissue, de novo lipogenesis, and improved insulin kinetics in children with obesity. And their conclusion is these findings support efforts to reduce sugar consumption, which I would agree with. But these findings also support efforts to say to people with coronavirus, like my dad, dad, you can improve your metabolic function in as little as nine days. So much of what I hear from people on Twitter is, Paul, I'm 100 pounds overweight. What am I supposed to do? And I say, don't worry about the weight. We know that independent of weight, 
we can improve your insulin sensitivity with the things that you and I are mentioning, Joe, with intermittent fasting, with changing your diet, with improving your insulin resistance markers, cutting out fructose, cutting out vegetable oils, getting in the sun and moving a little bit, that would change the world. That would really flatten the coronavirus curve. For sure. Absolutely. That would, well, yeah. This has been extraordinary. I just deeply appreciate your uh, time and review of the important components. So people want to know more about the, the carnivore diet. And actually, you have moved now. You used to be a San Diego and used to surf out there. Uh, but now you're in Texas. Is it Austin? That's your Austin, name? Texas. Austin. So, yeah, it's becoming a popular area. Certainly much, much better than California and their oppressive, tyrannical, democratic regime and putting people in forced lockdown. I bet there must have been a real reprieve to get to leave California a few weeks ago. I mean, what was your greatest observation in the transition? You know, Social. it's, yeah, I just think that it's so interesting. I think that our country is a lot of little, it's a lot of little countries. It's almost turning into Western or Eastern Europe and the culture is very different in different states. And I so appreciate the people of Texas and they're so friendly and welcoming and, and I, there's just not as much um, fear here. And you're able to just, you know, live responsibly. And if you're not infringing on anybody else's rights, you're able to make your own personal decisions without people telling you what to do in a different way. And so I moved to Texas to be closer to friends and be part of a growing community here of people who are thinking outside of the box. Florida is another good spot. That probably would have been my other choice. Yeah, those <laughs> but, are the uh, states, I think. So I'm biased. But uh, yeah, just, Texas well, is... I am biased. I love being in the ocean every day. So I mean, yeah. it's, just, it's hard for me to be in Texas because I wouldn't miss the ocean. But you've yeah. got a lake out there and you can do your surfing in the, on your, your board. So, yeah. But uh, so if people want to find more about you, uh, tell the new book is it, when will it be out? You had a revision of it because you so had we, the, the first self published initially and now yes. you have a big time published picture up because it did huge. Yeah, it was incredible. It was, it was a bestseller in spades, which is people should know is very, very difficult to do, almost unheard of and, and extraordinarily rare, but you did it. And then you were picked up by a big publisher. Right. They, yeah. I'm so, I'm so humbled and honored that people found the information in the book to be valuable. And the first edition did great. It was a bestseller. And then Houghton Mifflin picked it up. And so the second edition, which has a different cover and an index added to make it easier to find all those scientific terms will be out on August the 4th, 2020. And you can go to thecarnivorecodebook.com to order that everywhere. It's ebook, print, and audio. And the goal here is just to get more of these type of thoughts out to a wider generation of people, a wider group of people. It'll be in Target and Walmart and Hudson and the airports. And I just want it to reach as many people because books are so amazing, as you know. You know, somebody can spend $20 and get years and years of your research or you know, years and years of my research, and it just, they can change the world. And I hope that they change the world for the better and that people will be able to use the knowledge that I share in the book to just challenge the mainstream media or challenge the mainstream paradigm, which I think is hurting people. There's so much more for us to learn. So Yeah, so that's one place. And then the other where I, I, I subscribe to your podcast and I listen to most of them. And what is it? It's on YouTube. It's CarnivoreMD. Uh, fundamental Health. So right fundamental here. Health. Fundamental okay. Health. Or you can take health. on your name. It'll come up too. Because yeah. As of this time, I don't know. I don't think you've been censored yet, have you? I have been a little bit censored, a little bit. Well, not like us. We're completely out. Uh, (laughs) But but, but you're partially censored only. Yeah. I did get censored a couple times when I talked about glutathione for coronavirus. Imagine that. Imagine that. Yeah, imagine that. Really safe. And when I talked about the non 
like how low the asymptomatic infectivity rates with coronavirus were. I got, I got yeah, censored. Well, well, make sure you upload the BitChute too, so that you can at least have people can go to your site and find the BitChute one. So. Yeah, I'll do that. BitChute does not censor. There's a oh. lot of us who are uploading a BitChute. Yeah, so I'm on YouTube. Uh, people can look that. My podcast is Fundamental Health on iTunes. And my website is- That's free, man. That's great. Yeah. I, I, incredible. I mean, it goes deep and you have really a lot of interesting guests on there. So kudos on doing a great job on that. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. And like this, all of my podcasts, I just try and use screenshots and share real data and studies that people can look at. And I try to really get pretty granular. And then my website, carnivoremd.com, people can go there and find a listing of all my podcasts and link to all the articles and blog posts. And then I'm at carnivoremd on all the social media spots. All right. Well, that's great. You're doing an awesome job. You sort of came out of nowhere, not just relatively recently. And you're just a, just a breath of fresh air to have someone who's so healthy and committed and objective and not really, you know, you're a learner. So you, you, you're not, you, you, you make a strong effort to avoid confirmational bias so that if you're, you're open to new information, which is, it's a rare commodity. I really admire that about you and, and you have the courage to take a stance. So congratulations on everything you're doing. It's just Thank good you so much. It's such an honor and I've so appreciated all your support. And I think that that last thing you said is perhaps the greatest compliment that I could receive. I, I you know, I, I realize that all of us, anyone who's really thinking independently is always going to have to change their opinion and is always going to need people in their life like you and my other colleagues to share information with. And that's what it's about. And, and saying, hey, you know, I was a little bit wrong about this. And so I really do try to not have the confirmation bias as, as much as I can, but we're always learning and I'm, I'm learning and evolving. And I think that that's the way that I want to be. I want to be someone that people can really look at as being kind of independent and not tied to any particular dogma and willing to admit when I'm wrong and just advertising or at least advocating for people to, um, to get this information in the best way possible so that they can improve their health. Yeah, you're doing a great job. And the one other question I had and neglected to mention or request information is that you mentioned those supplements. What are they coming out and how do people get a hold of those? So it's heartandsoilsupplements.com. They will be live in August or July. So I imagine by the time this podcast comes out, you can go to the website, heartandsoilsupplements.com. And we have a, they, an array of supplements. Can they pre-order there? Uh, they could. Yep. You can probably pre-order. Yep. Yeah. Good. And they're from right, grass-fed, grass-finished regenerative farms. Yeah. Good job. I mean, Exciting it's totally, stuff. totally consistent with what you're teaching. So It is. And that's, it's just to be my, congruent. It's important to be congruent. Yeah. And it's just my message to just, I just want people to be able to get this nose to tail nutrition and, and really reclaim their health. Everyone has this ancestral birthright to radical health. And I just want people to be able to live that, you know, you're living that I'm living that I want my mom and my sister and my niece and my nephew and my dad to live that. And that's what gets me so excited is getting people back on that path to health. I think that's what you've always been about, which is why I always yeah, appreciate your work. Absolutely. Now, before I'm in closing, I'm going to turn the tables and say, <laughs> what is the most radical thing you've done recently? <laughs> I love it. So I, um, there was a recently a... For those who don't know, that's, Paul asked all his guests this at the end of his, his interview. <laughs> Typically, are you still doing that? I do. I always ask people that because I love that. I just love the word radical. I'm a child of the 80s. So there was recently a, uh, a tropical storm in the Gulf 
And I oh, went down to the, or what was her, what was I think name? it was Cristobal. Okay, Cristobal. Okay. Yeah. And I went down to the Gulf and I went surfing at a place called Matagorda. So I surfed in Texas a couple weekends ago and it was radical. It was really warm water. I was in the waves. They were about four to five feet. So for Texas, pretty good. Yeah, it's good for Texas. Yeah, pretty good for Texas. There were a lot of jellyfish. It made me tough. I kept getting stung by jellyfish. Uh, but, but I got to surf. The water's a little warmer than California. Did you oh, 82 degrees. You didn't have to wear a wetsuit. No, no wetsuit. It was great. It was just nice to be in the salt water on the beach and playing out there in nature. And it was really cool to share it with friends. So that's the most radical thing I did. That's recently. pretty radical. You quite yeah. pretty radical. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks again. And, uh, you know, people got your contact information if they want further information. But I couldn't endorse your book more strongly. It's a great job. And keep up the good work. Thank you so much, my friend.